I'm Beth Bailey, and my co-host Michael Cook couldn't be here today, but I'm really excited to talk today with uh, Paul L. Kobe. In most of our prior episodes, Michael and I have talked about more big picture issues, and today we're going to drill down into the case of a former Afghan Special Forces member and high-value target who remains in Afghanistan and whose life is now at incredible risk because of the Taliban's new fixation on finding and targeting former Afghan military personnel. Paul was an emergency medical technician for the United States Air Force between 2012 and 2016. After leaving the Air Force, he worked as a tactical medicine instructor and a DOD contractor, and he now works as a video, digital production, and social media marketing specialist. Like many veterans, Paul was instrumental in efforts to extract Afghan allies from Hamid Karzai International Airport, and we're honored to have him with us to talk about his ongoing work to preserve our allies' lives. Paul, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Beth. Yeah, it's great. I'm really excited. I know you've got some very unique stories to tell, and I think the most important one right now is about X, which is what you're calling this special forces member who's still stuck in Afghanistan. Um, can you tell us about, you You met him in 2021, or you were introduced to him online then. Can you tell us about how you came to be connected? Yeah, so uh, during the withdrawal, uh, my involvement ended up kind of, I guess, spearheading this team. Uh, while running that, I had a lot of folks reach out to me. Uh, my, my phone number had kind of ended up on various platforms and a, uh, a member of an ODA, a a team sergeant reached out to me directly and basically explained that one of their guys they had worked with, uh, both as a special operator, uh, as an intelligence sergeant out there. And then later on as a contractor, um, to my understanding, he was a contractor, uh, was pretty much stuck out there and he was an amputee. He was a HVT out there and needed assistance. So I began working my end of what I could do, uh, in dealing with this team sergeant and dealing with X himself. And unfortunately the withdrawal happened and he was kind of stuck. Absolutely. And so getting stuck, you know, how many, before that, how many years was he working with the U.S. X and, and what kind of things was he doing with our forces? So to my knowledge, he joined the Afghan army, uh, in 2009 and was a, uh, became a special forces operator over there in 2010, uh, and pretty much was in support of the U S uh, directly and indirectly from then through the, uh, through 2018 when he was injured. Wow. And what happened, his injury, uh, I think you've said in your social media posts that it had something to do with the Taliban. Do you know how he incurred that injury? Yeah, so he had been threatened multiple times uh, dating back to 2014 when uh, the Taliban approached his neighbors and told them. Uh, 2015 as well, notes were left on his door. And then in 2018, uh, there was an IED placed that he ended up uh, losing his leg to. Um, so fortunately it was just his leg, but obviously that's a pretty, uh, you know, pretty big message. Um, you know, and then they obviously wanted to kill him. So that, that happened in 2018, he was treated at a a U.S. hospital. Um, you know, and that was, uh, actually one of the photos on there. Uh, he was at a, a hospital with U.S. personnel. So, um, he was in direct support of, of ODAs through that, that time. Wow. And even despite being known to the U.S., having been here, he was not able to get out during the withdrawal. What what was the holdup or what kept him from being able to get out? Uh, so 
there was definitely a mobility component just in terms of, of his injury. Uh, you know, he, at the time, didn't have a, a prosthetic. His leg was infected. Um, and trying to get him to move, we initially had him kind of staged. Um, we had a safe house location. Him and his family were split. Uh, the plan was to kind of consolidate them and then move them uh, to Hkaya or another uh, point to leave the country. And the Taliban actually went and found his family's location. So we ended up having to shift everyone around. Uh, and then the withdrawal happened and it became, do we go with the rat line? What do we do here? Uh, and from there, we ended up just kind of placing them. Uh, fortunately, had funding come in um, through a, a source that wishes to kind of remain anonymous and worked with uh, the Patel Foundation and some other folks on trying to establish uh, kind of continuity to get him out. Wow. And so to your knowledge, does he have any eligibility for maybe the special immigrant visa program or any referrals to the U.S. refugee admissions program or any way to get to the U.S. through that kind of means? So as of right now, which uh, thanks to one of your contacts, actually, I, we did establish that his SIV application is pending and it does look promising. Uh, which is great uh, because to date we haven't heard anything on it. Uh, our last, I, I kind of removed myself from the situation due to my own personal matters, but to date we were pretty much under the impression that the um, the LOC that was put in there was not adequate and that he was just in a holding pattern. But now it looks like the SIV application just has not been reviewed. Okay. And that's something that I actually just got an update today that um, it looks like the SIV program is still going to be in deep uh, trouble with, I think there's a there's some issues with IRAP and the U.S. government. And I, I just heard that those with COM approval, it's still going to take three years to process them from this point. And I mean, imagine that somebody who has COM approval, which is just the first step yeah. of the SIV program, now knowing that they have three years to wait um, it's so devastating. And so that leads me to X's current situation. And so you mentioned that his prosthetic was um, infected at the time of the withdrawal. What happened with that? How, how do you get help for a, an infected prosthesis or an, you know, an infection in an amputated limb when you are stuck in hiding in Afghanistan? Fortunately, uh, some of the organizations that were involved had resources locally that were able to help uh, throughout. So he he has received medical care when needed. Um, you know, recently he did have to have a surgery, uh, which I know was an incurred cost uh, from my understanding of, of, of roughly $400. Um, so we still have donors that are obviously heavily involved and you know super grateful for those folks uh, willing to step up, especially for someone they've never met. Uh, but you know, the, these these folks were, were kind of placed in this situation by the U.S. ultimately, right? Like, we kind of showed up on their doorstep and were like, hey, can you help us? So uh, it is our responsibility. And while it may not be the individual's responsibility, um, I'm very grateful that people are stepping up uh, since, unfortunately, we have people within our political system that won't step up. And that's kind of how he's been receiving care at this point is just people willing to fund it. 
that's really incredible. And I know there are so many groups who are doing that. We talked to Leslie Merriman, who's got donors who are hosting big um, medical events in communities that aren't getting care because of uh, various issues. And, and I know that there are other HVTs that we have in safe houses who are similarly getting covert medical care. And that's so important to keep yeah. supporting these people because, like you say, our government has stopped doing that. And during all of this, the Taliban haven't stopped threatening X. Is that true? Uh, no. I mean, he, he definitely was, he's definitely on their list. I mean, he, he's one of those people that, you know, he took the fight to the enemy. Um, you know, I, I have been sent tons of photos, videos. Um, I've talked to operators that, that have met him in person and, uh, he, you know, he did his job and did it well. So most recently, uh, from my understanding, he did have a family member that was kind of uh, taken for a few days and interrogated. Uh, fortunately, they were released, um, but that information was kind of uh, sent to him through a third party. And, you know, they don't know where he is. Uh, and fortunately, you know, that that's a good thing. They don't know where he is. Um, we're trying to keep him as safe as possible. And uh, hopefully speaking more about it actually helps uh, get the correct people involved so that he doesn't have to be in danger much longer. Sure. Yeah, that would be ideal. I can't imagine, especially in a country like Afghanistan, where families are so close knit, extended families yeah. are so close knit, not being able to tell your own you know, family member just rolled them up. Um, so how is he doing mentally being stuck? I mean, this is a man who was an operator yeah. and used to doing difficult physical things uh and now he's living in a safe house how is that mentally for him uh he's i would say he's doing as well as he can with the situation um you know i i can't imagine being confined to a, a bedroom or a basement or wherever they're at that is a, a small confined space uh with multiple family members for well over a year uh we all did it with COVID at some point um, but we still had freedom of movement and he has none of that. So, uh, he's doing the best he can, but at the end of the day, I completely understand his worries. He's worried really about his safety, his family safety and, and being able to protect them. And he's not as mobile as he was. Uh, so I definitely worry that he feels like he may be a liability. Uh, that's hard to say from my end, but I do know, uh, he's definitely prepared for what he needs to be prepared for. So. Well, we definitely hope that he can get some help, get out of that situation, yep. get evacuated. Um, that's very disconcerting. Uh, you know, I've heard through a lot of other volunteers. I'm, I'm glad that X has an SIV application underway because I've heard that so many special forces personnel don't have SIV applications, don't have anybody advocating for them, don't have any means to get to the U.S. And I'm just... Your thought on that, you, you've worked with X, you've helped some special operators get out of the country. Can you think of any reason why special operators who worked shoulder to shoulder with our forces and who we've trained to be the best of the best in the Afghan military, why they should not be allowed to come to the U.S.? You know, unfortunately, I, I think a big component of it is uh, maybe the lack of documentation on certain aspects, right? Uh a lot of these folks, especially if they transitioned from a direct soft component in the Afghan military to supporting ODAs or NSW or whoever, 
um, outside of that were being paid cash. A lot of them weren't, you know, they weren't being properly documented. And I think that's come into play a lot of times where uh, folks were just kind of being paid under the table. So it's not, I guess, verified by the U.S. government, even though these people were putting their lives on the line uh, to help, you know, U.S. off. So it's that's that's something I've run into. Um, there's also the there's there's also a part of me that that wonders if they're being deemed um, collateral damage, you know, by the U.S. government, because then it's it's uh, more people they have to fund it. You know, there, there's too many aspects, I guess, for me to kind of wrap my head around just being uh, involved in the small way I was involved. So I think that's that's a big thing for policymakers to deal with. I think uh, the conversations I had in 2021 uh, and into early 2022 with policymakers, with, you know, Congress people, senators, stuff like that, I, I, I expressed all this where I said, you know, you need to get with your peers. You need to stop calling us and asking us for help. Uh, you need to be the change for this to happen and to save these lives. Uh, and, and I mean, you know it all too well. It's a lot of these folks are being hunted right now. Absolutely. Have you gotten any help from congressional representatives, from senators with X? No, no. Uh, I reached out. Um, it kind of coincided actually with, uh, so I lost my, my employment right after the withdrawal uh, and then was being kind of forced out of my apartment due to my rent being increased because of where I was living. Um, I reached out to my, my local representatives at the time. Uh, I never even heard back. And it turned out that one of them was very anti, uh, anti Afghan. So I, I never heard anything back. That's so frustrating. And it's something that, you know, I've heard even like Tom Schumann trying to get help for Zach and they've, yeah. they've written a, a best-selling book together and yep. he struggles to get certain people to yeah. answer. It's very frustrating. I've been lucky to get a couple uh, congressional inquiries through my local congresswoman and it has made me so grateful knowing that there's somebody in her office who actually pushes that through and, but it depends it all is based on who is your representative and do they really want to help? And then the bigger thing is for them to all work together to do something like pass the Afghan Adjustment Act, increase the number of SIV applications available. And that's beyond just one person. And, and like you say, these are people who are reaching out to people like you yeah. to get people out of, you know, and that's what we hear from everyone who is there at HKIA is that the people at the top who you would think would have that pull, they didn't have that pull. It was the people who were part of networks like you. And so I'd love to talk more about your role in getting you know vetted Afghan allies evacuated through HKIA. When did you start getting involved in that effort? Yeah, so it's actually really funny. Um, the tie-in with that, there is a tie-in with Tom Schumann. Uh, so <laughs> a really good friend of mine, Chris, um, he's a, a former recon Marine. Uh, absolutely great dude. He reached out to me and asked me for help getting a friend of his, uh, his interpreter's wife was still over there and the interpreter was Conus. Uh, so Chris knew I, I may have some contacts, um, especially in some of my friends groups that may be out there or may be able to assist. Uh, so Chris hit me up and I, I started taking that on just in my spare time from there. Uh, I had seen a post by Tom Schumann 
on his Instagram and it was about Zabi. Uh, and it was basically like, uh, if I remember correctly, it was a post of Corey Maza's and it basically was seeking assistance and helping to get his interpreter Zabi out. So I messaged Corey directly. I said, Hey, I, you know, um, I may have some resources available. Uh, what can I do to help? And then he linked me in with Zabi as well. Uh, so that was a, a whole WhatsApp, you know, the Afghans uh, primarily use WhatsApp. So I'd be on signal with Corey, WhatsApp with Corey and Zabi together. And then Zabi was uh, the first Afghan that I assisted getting out. And it just snowballed from there uh, to where I was in, you know, I was on signal nonstop, uh, was taking PTO at work um, because I also just hated my job at the time. But uh Ended up, you know, PTO at work uh, and just diving in pretty much 22 hours a day to uh, help. And from that point, uh, an individual named John Reed reached out to me and he was a former uh, 18 Delta. So he reached out and asked me if I'd be willing to kind of uh, join forces and set up kind of a, a task force of our own. And we just kind of dove right in, uh, brought on another at the time, uh, active SF operator, um, Tristan. And then we were kind of involved actually with USASOC, uh, on this effort. How did that involvement work? Like what were you doing? How was USASOC helping or what was that effort like? Yeah. So it allowed us to really kind of shift efforts to a level of legitimacy where everything was structured correctly uh, on our end, right? So we were able to work within that element, brief them and make sure what we were doing kind of lined up and wasn't gonna get us in trouble. Um, so that, that was pretty nice because there was definitely a, a worry uh, and a lot of talks happened. We, we had a running joke about ending up like the A-team, you know, <laughs> we're like, that's the last thing we want is to, to end up like that. Um, so we brought in various people from both the soft uh, and intelligence worlds and were able to kind of uh, really decentralize and figure out how we were going to structure everything. So only certain people got certain information. We had different rooms set up for different ops, uh, different locations. We had a, a subject matter expert get involved who was very instrumental. Uh, he had assets on the ground that he had worked with for, you know, 14 plus years at that point. And we were able to really make an impact because of that, um, you know, and, and get involved, I, I would say, on a, a pretty, pretty large scale uh, that hopefully impacted people in a good way. So that is so incredible. So what kinds of Afghan allies were you helping? I mean, were these primarily people who served in the military? Were there humanitarian type involvement, you know, folks? Yeah, so um, there's... There's actually a lot, right? So uh, we had, we definitely had a good bit of soft personnel. Uh, I know you had mentioned you saw the story of Gan Wick, and he was a, a really cool one to uh, kind of go through that story. And, and we were very fortunate that uh, we got them out. Um, but there were also, uh, if you're familiar with the NGO Skatistan, um, which was an Afghan skateboarding nonprofit, uh, we got uh, about 40, I believe it was 47 members from Skatistan out, primarily women and children. Um, you know, we got them out. Uh, there was also a female professor um, who I am still in touch with to date. She, uh, 
unfortunately had been taken by the Taliban and tortured. Um, and it was a very, she was a very um, high priority for us to get out. And the, uh, you know, I, I, I give all the credit in the world to them every, every chance I get, but the PJs we had out there, there were uh, two teams of PJs and there was also RQS personnel on the ground. Um, so pilots and crew members, they were so instrumental in, in helping us get folks out at Abbey Gate. But, uh, you know, we, we didn't we didn't limit things specifically to soft personnel. Uh, we didn't limit things to, you know, um, AMSITs, but we got AMSITs, uh, soft personnel, um, you know, school children, you name it. So that's so incredible. And so everybody talks about Digital Dunkirk. And in fact, you're you're named in a uh, Washington Post piece where they say that you're part of Digital Dunkirk, but you guys called yourselves something different and you were kind of separate. So can you tell me about that and tell our listeners about that? Yeah, we tried. We really tried to stay off the radar for the most part. Um, even when we did the John and I were both involved in the Washington Post article and we had a, a discussion as a team um, where everyone chimed in because we didn't want to just do an interview. Um, I had been called for CNN and Fox interviews. John had been called for interviews. And we were very sure of not wanting to become, you know, known in the media because we were so busy on operations. Um, so we had discussed, hey, you know, how do we want to present this? What do we want to talk about? And uh, we didn't want to bring any attention to the organization itself. And throughout, we just kind of had joke names. Uh, so I know we were named in the Senate hearing as uh, Task Force Owl Peyote. So that was like one of the names. And then really, we just kind of called ourselves the network. Um, because, you know, we would constantly refer to it be like, Oh, you know, let me get with the network and kind of see or uh, it would just kind of grow over time. And every everyone knew everyone. So it wasn't we didn't have any of the, the issues that other organizations had of, of you know, people infiltrating our chats or anything like that because everyone was vetted prior to being involved. So uh, we were kind of happy that we kept it the way we did. Um, I might have a tattoo of it soon because it's just hilarious. But uh, there's just, it's just been a running joke for the longest time that, and then the Senate hearing came out and it was, oh, you know, task force Al Peyote. Um, but we had no official name. So. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah, the owl peyote thing cracks me up. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you did evacuations through Abbey Gate, but you also did them through Blackgate. And so I don't think there's been much. I certainly haven't seen much about Blackgate and the use of it. So can you tell us about what was it like using that? What were the obstacles? Just, you know, the optics yeah. of Blackgate. So Blackgate was a, a really interesting um, experience. Abbey Gate was amazing. Uh, obviously, you know, um, for rescue efforts, and then uh, obviously a tragic, very tragic incident there. Um, but Blackgate was one of those kind of hidden gems of sorts. Um, I fell into through a uh, PST individual I know that had been in country uh, supporting, you know, a, a pretty high vis individual. Um, I fell into meeting a conventional soldier that was on the ground uh, absolutely great dude, uh, you know, nicknamed Nate. And he really was instrumental in saving countless lives. Um, this dude worked his ass off nonstop. Uh, if I needed something done, I would hit him up about it. He would relay it to his command, kind of see if it was feasible and was able to really make a difference. Um, there, it did present its own host of issues. Uh, there were a few people that had showed up there that, 
are showing up there that were uh, uh, quote unquote like VIPs and stuff um, on the American side that kind of caused chaos at the gate. Uh, and some people know that story and, and it definitely, you know, NDS would start throwing flashbangs like crazy uh, and, and shake up the entire crowd to where we had um, a personal friend of John's at the gate. Uh, John and Tristan both knew this individual. They were the first people, the first family at the gate and NDS just started lobbing flashbangs. Chaos happened, uh, you know, everyone dispersed and we had lost them for hours when they were like the next people to get in. So there, there were a bunch of weird stories like that, but um, Blackgate was a, a huge success for us uh, because of, especially because of Nate and some of the other individuals that we were able to kind of work with there. Um, one of the biggest ones I would say was, uh, um, you know, we nicknamed him Ganwick. Uh, he was a soft operator. Um, and the way that kind of played out was an individual uh, from a partner nation's intelligence agency reached out to a friend of mine who was involved with the network, who was a uh, former GRS operator, and said, hey, uh, we have a very important individual that we need to get out. However, he is in Kabul and doesn't have transport to the airport. Um, do you guys have any way of getting him there? Uh, another individual who was involved with us who um, funded a bus uh, with a, a local driver had just reached out to me asking if he could get the bus into the airport. And I kind of took this as a way to merge worlds since everyone was vetted and basically told the uh, individual from the, the partner nations Intel uh, that, hey, if we can get your guy on the bus, can you get the bus in the gate? Uh, since everyone was vetted, there were Afghan operators on the bus providing security as well, uh, and it managed to work out. So during this, we set up a, a meetup point for the bus and Ganwick and his family. As that was playing out, uh, a Taliban hit squad showed up at Ganwick's house. Um, to our knowledge, uh, it was, you know, three individuals hopped out of a truck showed up at the at the front door and he grabbed his AK and did what he needed to do to get out of there while he was wearing a, a black sequin shirt, uh, which is just amazing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, obviously a pretty traumatic incident. And I remember the proof of life photo uh, that you could tell like they had been through it. But um, basically we set up that meet point. He linked up with the bus and they rode, you know, bypassed managed to somehow bypass all the checkpoints um, and we got them to Blackgate. As this was also happening, a, uh, a ranger also involved with the network had reached out to me and said he had a bus and I thought it was the same bus. Um, and there was another HVT on that bus that was very important. Um, managed to get both those buses bundled together and get them in. Um, we had a OGA operator who did a link up with uh, our guide Nate, and they were basically able to do a handoff of Ganwick on the ground once Nate pulled them off the bus. Um, so that was an instance where Blackgate managed to get in close to, I think, 150 people at once, um, just because we had the, the capability to, to bring vehicles in there. Wow, and you couldn't bring vehicles in at Abbey, correct? They had, no. most people were coming in through the, uh the sewers and canals outside yep. yeah they were being pulled up over the wall over there um at least on our end uh 
that's how uh, our uh, the PJs that were on the ground were primarily pulling people over the wall. Okay. One of the things I'm sure, did you see the um, congressional hearing where yeah. there were just some heartbreaking testimony about Afghans you know, killing themselves on the yeah, walls? The razor and, wire, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just, did you see, were you guys party to anything like that? Just the desperation that was going on at the time? We had been told. Uh, we had been told um, of instances of that. We obviously knew about the, uh, the Taliban. Um, murdering people in the spot there as well, uh, or dragging people off. Um, we were pretty fortunate. Our, our biggest goal, I think I can say collectively was to make sure no one got killed. And, uh, we got, we were, we achieved that, um, with no one we were escorting, uh, in getting, uh, murdered. So that was a, a very, um, in a way it's a very hard pill to swallow though, because we do know that there, there are people that unfortunately didn't have a chance. Um, you know, and, and that is a tough thing, but yeah, I mean, we heard of countless people being trampled. Uh, we had people, uh, I know the, the skatist gang group we had, they were all huddled together. And fortunately they were, they were able to kind of protect themselves that way. Um, they would just, you know, stick together in a big group. Um, and that was very smart on their part. We had, uh, I know Zabi experienced a lot of rounds flying over his head. Um, you know, he got, I mean, even by, he was beat up by the NDS. So it, everyone there, there, there was violence around every corner there. And uh, I think anyone that got out alive was, was very fortunate. What was it like knowing that from, I mean, obviously you were sleeping two hours a night. So this was something that was so important to you. Was there that was, part of what was motivating you or was it just like, you know, Yeah, I don't even know if I was sleeping. There was a point, um, there was a point where I think I'd been up probably close to, to five or six days. Um, count, like I just couldn't sleep and I, I would just hop right back on my computer because I just couldn't sleep. Uh, and I finally went to sleep at one point. Uh, I woke up, I had just received a phone call when I was going to bed and I called Tristan because it sounded to me like the guy was going to die. And, uh, he was at Abbey gate and for, he then got out. Um, I don't even know how this guy got my phone number. I don't, you know, he sent me all his documents. I looked through them and I was like, okay, like, let me see what I can do. And then he managed to get out. And, uh, I went to sleep right after that. I think it was uh, probably about six thirty, seven in the morning, went to sleep for two and a half, three hours. I woke up and I always tell people this. I've never been to Afghanistan. My only tie to Afghanistan was working on people wounded in Afghanistan and Germany and working on some ANA folks when they were training in San Antonio or they would come to Germany. That was it. And uh, I woke up after like three hours of sleep and was pretty much hallucinating thinking I was in Afghanistan, you know, and that's like, that's like the level of, of how absurd some of the, the events were, um, where I had to kind of snap myself out of it to realize, no, I'm, I'm in a suburb of Orlando, Florida right now. I'm fine. Uh, so I, it's, it's kind of a crazy experience to think about because I, I've dealt with, you know, sleep deprivation and stuff like that previously, but, um, being thrust into that situation and not being able to relinquish any type of control because you care so deeply, you know, these are our fellow humans and, uh, they're essentially being hunted and, um, there's a, a timeline on it, which was the, the weirder part. So anytime you gave up, you felt like you were losing time and you weren't going to be able to get everyone out. So, 
Well, and it was so crazy because, I mean, I the way I first got into post-withdrawal, because I, I worked on Taliban senior leadership for the Army as a civilian intelligence analyst for years, and then just kind of Afghanistan became this big thing that I knew was going to blow up, and I just didn't know yeah. when, and then it you know, clearly it did. But right before I started writing about Zach and Tom, and I still vividly remember waking up because I would wake up all the time. I'm like, what's going on? And I didn't, I wasn't involved at the level that you were in any way. I was watching what was happening on the news and then watching my social media feed. And I still, I would wake up multiple times to see what's going on, what's happening. And, and there was nothing like seeing the picture of Zach's family and knowing that after all of those efforts, all of the people trying for years to get their SIV applicants to safety, there was this, like you said, a tiny window where you had to work so hard to get people out in that window in the middle of all of this very scary, you know, the crush of humanity and people trying to escape. And so, yeah, that's, it was a hugely, I cannot imagine what it was like to live through that and and not sleep and have this huge pressure on you. And and to think that I said this when we talked to Chris and, um, and Dan, and I guess, yeah, it was, we talked about if, um, if you guys hadn't done things like that, just imagine what would have happened. I mean, who would have gotten out if there weren't veterans and volunteers back on signal doing all that work. And and the way I've kind of come to process that, as a whole is uh it's i also you know i want to give thanks to to all the folks that are, are not being recognized in in any of this right there's countless uh units that were on the ground um countless other you know people behind the scenes that uh are, are just kind of in the shadows um you know there were there were air crew members that got uh distinguished flying crosses 52 of them um you know and, and being a, a former airman to me uh it's kind of sad to see that the uh you know the PJs that were on the ground haven't been recognized. Nothing's been been even said about it. And those dudes put in absolute work, the RQS members on the ground. Um, you know, the gunships that were flying, uh, a good friend of mine was on, you know, on those gunships. And those dudes, they were up there hours, you know, just, just flying and doing security. And no one's talking about that. Um, you know, the, the, the reality of it is this is... And, and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but I, I, I almost have to feel like this is being brushed under the rug. Um, you know, and I'm glad we're having hearings and, and I'm glad that it's, it's, there is some level of accountability um, coming into it because I don't know if it was intentional. Uh, I, I, I don't think it was. I, I like to think the U.S. Um, does genuinely care about people, right? We, we, we provide billions of dollars in humanitarian relief, uh, or even, um, you know, at the current time, you know, wartime efforts. So I, I don't want to think that this would be intentional, but I, I do want to see recognition and I, I do want to see these service members, especially that were involved in this taken care of because a lot of these folks were not prepared for this. Um, you hear the, the, the testimony of, of these young Marines that were on the ground there, they were not prepared for this. Most of them hadn't, hadn't been deployed before. Um, you know, this was a, a, a level of brutality and violence that was witnessed firsthand by these folks that I don't think anyone could understand yeah. or fathom. Um, so that that to me is, is I think, uh, almost as important 
if not as important as ensuring we can help people get out of harm's way right now, because I think the after effects of this stuff are, are going to be very long lived. I think the, the trauma that, that transpired there is going to, is, is really going to take a toll. Oh, absolutely. The moral injury of it. And yeah. I, I forget, maybe it was Scott Mann who brought up the increased number of calls to hotlines and things like that. Um, in the aftermath of our withdrawal, because this is a yeah. huge for the people who were there and saw it and for the people who had been there or who, who had friends there. I mean, I, yeah. I never went to Afghanistan either. I worked on it from a computer very far away, yeah. but it still is so near and dear to my heart and it hurt to watch just to watch it all go away. Yeah. And so there are so many people in that boat and that's why you're like, yeah, whatever's happening that's making it be swept under the rug. I think it's, we all need to demand that, uh, that this, this can't yeah. continue. We have to help the people like X because it's, it's a moral imperative to try to tidy up the thing that we really botched. You know, it was, there's no way to call what happened, not, a, you know, a botched, I think withdrawal. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. I don't think anyone even needs to point fingers. I, I don't think it was any one person's fault. Right. I don't think anyone could understand what was happening, but I do think that there were so many layers of, you know, communication that were just blundered. Um, you know, I, I, I really, one of the funniest ones to me was, I remember, uh, and I think there's actually a video of it. I, I called the Pentagon super frustrated one night. Uh, and John and I were on Zoom and he was sitting there recording it. And I had had a few incidents where I just, you know, lack of sleep got the best of me. And uh, so I called and I'm like, listen, I need to speak to someone, you know, at this command, like right now. And it was a, it was a colonel. And I'm like, I need to speak to someone that actually can do something. So can you please, you know, patch me through? And he's like, hey, uh, you know, I, I don't know who you are. I don't know. I'm like, listen, and this, this was a point where, um, the, uh, I don't know if you've heard anything about Laura, Laura Bush's school children. Mm -mm. So, uh, one of our guys, Rob was very involved in getting these school girls out. And, uh, there was a con again, a contracted bus driver. Um, they were sitting at the NDS gate and they, the bus driver started calling like crazy because he said there was an ISK spotter and he's like, Hey, we're, you know, we're sitting here. There's a spotter. We're going to die. Um, so we started panicking obviously because we're like, there's 62 or something school children on this bus. Like we need to do something. So they're not letting them in because there's no Americans to escort them. Because as you know, all the Americans on H Kyle were told to not move because of threats and whatever, even though they wanted to move. So I start calling uh, the Pentagon because I'm like, I don't, I don't know who else to call at this point. Like, I, I just, I don't want these school kids um, dying. So what I was told was that uh, the high ranking individual um, who had at least a star was out at dinner and it was, it was a Saturday night. I remember this. So I, I was like, oh, well, that's great. I, you know, I wish I could be out at dinner since I'm a civilian and it was just, I feel like it just felt, it fell on like deaf ears, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there in my apartment. I should be out enjoying my life or, or doing whatever. And I'm, you know, doing this and, and John and I are on zoom frustrated. I, I, I don't think I'd change my clothes in a few days. Like 
And it, it was just so baffling to me that the entire time there's no, there's just no one, you know, there, there was no one that you could really count on. And then to be getting phone calls from people in those positions of power, asking for help. Um, I remember, I, I forget the Senator's name uh, and uh, his daughter somehow was given my phone number and she called me and she asked me for help. She's like, listen, you know, my father is Senator so-and-so and she was very, very, very nice woman. And I, I sat there and I was like, listen, I'm sorry, but your father and his peers need to do a better job because you're calling a veteran who you don't know. Um, and you're asking veterans and other people for, for this support when you don't know our level of trauma, you don't know what we're going through and you're, you're all dumping more trauma on us. And she, she understood exactly what I meant by that. Um, but that's, that's just how the, you know, that's just how the dice were rolled the entire time was, oh, let me call this person and ask for help because of whatever. Or the other fun phone calls were the ones where they're like, we, you know, we want to help our constituents. I'm like, well, do your constituents even know this person? Or are they friends of friends of friends? Because it doesn't sound like your constituents or you even know this individual. So That's so frustrating. And, you know, we've seen it. It's continued that that heaping of of all of these things onto veterans and just random yeah. civilian volunteers to it. It's continued yeah. because I'm watching, um, Lark Escobar. We had her on the show before she spends more than 60 hours a week working with Afghan evac, which is a U.S. government sponsored entity that gets people out of the country yeah. for free. She doesn't get paid. It's, and it's constantly, yeah. you know, just at the forefront of her mind, we've got people like, um, Duke at Operation North Star or Ben Owen yeah. at uh, Flanders Fields, just all of these veterans who have lost so much money marriages because they're continuing to funnel themselves into this thing that should be taken care of by our government. And so that, I guess my last question for you would be, <clears throat> you don't even know X and now you're being pulled back in because X is still stuck. He's still having yeah. terrible struggles. And there's nothing that you can do. How does that feel? I mean, what is that like being asked to do this life or death thing for someone that, that, that it should be somebody else's job to do? So this might be a little long-winded, I guess. Um, and I, I do want to kind of like backstory this a little bit. Um, so my involvement with X uh, kind of came to a halt because of my personal struggles. Um, I realized that, so shortly after the withdrawal, um, I'd already been having issues at my previous employer uh, right after what was crazy was the CEO of the company had gone on a, uh, a retreat with a wounded warrior. Um, I was good friends with the CEO of the company and I noticed he posted an Instagram, uh, a photo on Instagram. And I looked at the photo and I instantly knew who the person, the wounded warrior he was with, the wounded warrior he was with was a patient of mine. Um, who had actually been wounded in Afghanistan. Uh, he was a, a, Green, a Green Beret at 7 Special Forces Group, uh, and his teammate had been killed um, in 2014, if I remember correctly. Um, so I instantly saw that photo, and I worked on this individual in the ICU when we received him in Germany. He was in very rough shape, uh, and it, it definitely kept me up. Like that, that was something I carried with me for a long time was, was that specific case. And um, to see that stirred up a lot 
especially right after the withdrawal. Um, and a lot of my trauma kind of started to show after that from, from years past, um, of stuff I just, you know, pushed down. And then a week later, uh, I found myself, um, unemployed. I, I lost my job, uh, at this company. And then I fully transitioned into helping X and his family. And it got to the point where I was unable to really do anything else. Um, I was not sleeping. I was, you know, very, uh, aggressive in just how I was living my life. And fortunately the Patel foundation got involved. Uh, a good friend of mine helped fund things and I was able to step away because of how bad my mental health was getting. Uh, my best friend, a few other people had spoken to me and they're like, Hey, you need to focus on your life right now. You are going down a dangerous path. Um, and you need to take care of yourself. And, uh, that's kind of what I had to step away and do. And then it was good. I did because my mother ended up becoming, uh, extremely ill uh, and almost passed away. So I ended up taking care of her for five months. Um, so right now I'm at a, a very weird crossroads. Uh, and X reached out to me, um, in a way he would, especially being an intelligence sergeant would have never reached out to me unless he needed help. So for me to receive that uh, form of communication and realize that he is in that position where he would take a risk like that, it, it, it speaks volumes to me. Um, and, you know, I feel like I do need to advocate for him uh, at, at whatever level I can. Um, so now it's if I need to, you know, do interviews or need to uh, speak on his behalf to try and help them, I will. Because I don't know how else to get them out. Um other people I had advocated for, I, there was, there were individuals involved with USAID, uh, a, a a lovely woman. She was a professor, uh, and her husband who worked for USAID, they did not receive any help from USAID. And my recommendation to them was to go to a third party nation, a smaller nation, not in NATO. Um, and they did that and were able to seek asylum that way. But in this case, I don't know how else to intervene other than U.S. government involvement because of the scale, um, you know, that he is at in terms of how valuable he is. Absolutely. I, he's very lucky to have you. And it's so, I mean, it, it breaks my heart to hear that you're being asked to do that in the midst of all these other things going on. I can commiserate as I am going through a rather crazy time yeah. myself and it's it's really hard um and at the same time it's so important and if it weren't important i don't think there are a lot of people who are being pulled in all those directions at once and i just i'm very glad that you're doing what you're doing and taking care of yourself too in the midst of all of that it's really important i appreciate it yeah and i mean you know i i can't even imagine how burned out uh, there, there are folks, I mean, including, um, X's current handler, I, they've been working on this night and day since, and I can't imagine the level of burnout they're dealing with and the level of frustration they're dealing with. Um, you know, I, I fortunately had people in my corner to tell me to, to take a step back. Uh, otherwise I, I'm not sure, uh, where I'd be, Yeah. but it's, it's definitely, it's funny. I had a, <laughs> I actually was, was seeing a therapist at the VA for chronic pain um, to kind of help me work through strategies of dealing with that. And, uh, my, my lat, my second to last session, 
I, I was speaking to her and I kind of brought up, uh, I hadn't been in a place where I had the capacity to speak about some of this and she had no idea. And <sighs> it came up and she's like, she's like, what do you, what? Like now, now you mentioned this. Um, and I was like, didn't like, you don't Google your patients. Like, and she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I, I Google everyone personally, especially after the withdrawal, I Google everyone. But, uh, she she looked it up and then she, I had my last appointment with her and she's like, I read up on you <laughs> and she's like, why would you not mention this? Like, I, there was too much other stuff. I, I right. you know, but it's I I can't like I said earlier, you know the the amount of trauma that people are carrying with them from this even at a distance, right? Because you're you're dealing with the inner workings of people's lives, you're seeing the disparity and the um just the the just amount of will to live yeah it's it's hard oh, yeah. uh, and then taking taking that into the your life it's going to create rifts it's going to create um issues so i think all of my family and friends are sick of hearing about afghanistan all the time but it's all that i focus on because it's all i have in my inbox it's people constantly asking me do you have any updates on p1 and p2 processing and no i don't because yeah. the u.s government isn't giving anyone any and so yeah i'm sorry you're stuck in pakistan and so that's all i it's yeah. it's really hard to I, try to continue living your life normally when you know that these people who are so lovely who when they reach out to you could be in have the taliban at their front door and will still ask you how are you yeah. doing and and they're struggling yeah, and that's a, a very real one. Um, and I, I, I really do have to, you know, and this is just advocating for you and advocating for, for everyone else involved. I mean, it is crucial to step away. It is crucial to make time for yourself and self-care because this is as real as it gets. But like you said, there's there's not much we can do. Um, so taking time for, you know, family, for hobbies, for life is, is so important. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. And I I have begun to do that myself because it's the only way yeah. to stay, you know, keep moving ahead. Um, yeah. I'm glad that you're doing yeah, it. Um, and, and I'm glad that, you know, we're all still making the time to make sure that everyone's going to be okay and, and pushing forward um, and trying to get other people involved too. I think that's the important thing sure. is um, we've had 20 years of this war and most of us didn't have to actually see anything of it. I mean, you obviously did in a very intense way, um, you know, with people coming off the battlefield with horrific wounds and you watching that. Um, but most Americans didn't really have to experience the war. And so they didn't get to get to know Afghans and get to understand their struggles. Um, and I think we are told that it's this very complicated problem set and yeah, it's definitely complicated, but you can understand it. And these are humans. I mean, we watched Ukraine and the U S opened its doors to Ukrainian refugees. Let's open our doors yeah. to Afghans too, and have a heart for these people who are, we, who have been welcomed in and who will continue to be welcomed in. And I think that's important. Um, yeah, I think, um, to just kind of hit on that a little bit, I think there's actually a component there that I heard recently. Um, it was actually on the Sean Ryan podcast. It was with uh, I don't want to I don't want to botch his name. He was a CAG operator, uh, and he was involved in Mali. But um, he spoke about something that kind of made sense to me with America as a whole. And 
basically he was saying how when he was involved in the Mali hotel attack and he was clearing the rooms looking for Americans, it dawned on him that everyone in that hotel was in Western dress and everything he had done previously, everyone was in traditional, you know, Afghan garb, you know, Middle Eastern clothing, stuff like that, hijabs. And that affected him so greatly. And I think we as Americans do that in general. We do that with, um, you know, third world countries all the time where I, I don't I, subconsciously, I don't think it's, it's a conscious effort, but I think we not necessarily look down on or anything like that, but we, we don't consider it the same as us unless it's hammered in the media. And, you know, the media is kind of controlling the narrative on this where you hear about it every so often, but no one's deep diving this and why it is so important. Uh, and I heard someone, you know, relate it recently saying it, it's the modern day. Um, I've heard two things referred to as the modern day Vietnam. And I think this is the, the most real comparison. The other one was about uh, COVID, which I don't agree with. But um, this, I, I do believe, is, is to the same level, if not more. I mean, this is 20 years of conflict. You had... You had fathers and sons fighting in the same conflict at the same time. I don't think that's ever happened before. Absolutely. And I think we, we've seen, it's like you said, the media shows us pictures of Afghan women behind full hijab. I, the yes. Afghan women I talked to, they don't, they weren't doing that. Or if they were, it was like a loose hijab and they're women who have yeah. fought like hell to get educated. I've never met women yeah. more driven to be educated and westernized than Afghan women. And so I think that's why it's important. We have to see that. And so I guess that dovetails nicely. Yep. We always end our episodes with a letter from an Afghan about the things that they've undergone. And today's uh, letter is actually from, this is the first young woman who wanted to use her full name in her story. Um, she's wow. Nahida Kasimi, and she escaped um, to another country where she's currently getting her education. But she wrote this. It's kind of like an open letter to war. And so I will read that uh, in her own words. Dear War, congratulations. You succeeded in forcing me to leave everything. You made me leave my people, city, tradition, country, and society. I've always wondered, where does my homeland go? Because wherever I go, I constantly feel like a fish out of water. I'm trying to get used to this unknown and stranger city. Nonetheless, sometimes everything collapses by and gets awful for me. Sometimes when it really gets too silent, gray, dark, gloomy, and depressing, I call my mother 3,371 miles away and talk with her about my father, brother, and how she's been doing. I am fond of calling her on the phone. However, when she asks about me, I reply and say, I'm okay. And then after a while, we say, Allah Hafiz to each other. I don't want to trouble her with my issues. When I hear her voice on the phone, my eyes sparkle and my heart brightens. Dear war, you made me abandon my school friends, my old town roads, my grandmother's advice, my relatives, my evening walks with my elder sister and the smell of my family and home. You made me become a stranger to those days when I was coming exhausted from school and was laying on my bed and the home smells and frequency were making me feel like I belonged somewhere. In this unknown city, sometimes when I miss my homeland, it becomes hard for me even to breathe, especially these days that I'm receiving bad news about my homeland of Afghanistan. I know even the thought of losing my homeland makes me lonely, but don't be happy, war. I'm trying to never become the cause of my own loneliness. From this moment, I'm trying to protect my mind and body from your bad frequency. 
I'm trying to improve myself and trying to grow gradually. I know I need to be a better person for my own sake, for my compatriot's sake, and for the sake of the person who caused us to be in all these circumstances. I know I haven't collected my pieces yet, and I'm really wondering who I am and where I belong to. I know that I'm tired of searching for my shattered pieces, which are scattered everywhere, but don't be happy, war. I will never stop. I will never stop to discover who, stop discovering who I really am. I will never stop collecting my pieces, and I will never stop fighting with you, and will never stop being a victorious warrior. I am doing all this not merely for myself, but for my country, my beloved family, and my friends, and innocent victims. I hate you with every inch of my body, and hope to see you never, ever. Nahida Kasimi. Uh, we want to thank wow. Nahida. That was really powerful. Um, <clears throat> to hear, uh, I can't imagine what it would be like, you know, so many Afghans, they love their homeland. And, and the ones I talked to, too, they say, I didn't want to leave Afghanistan, even for the U.S. They love their country. Uh, they don't want it to be under Taliban rule. And that's why I'm so glad. Um, I do want to say any other Afghans who want to share their stories, please send them to us. The show address is the Afghanistan Project podcast at gmail.com. And we really want to hear from you and make sure that the world hears what you're going through so that they understand in a more real way, like you were talking about, Paul, you know, who Afghans really are and not what we've seen in the media and what we hear in the media. Um, I can't thank you enough, Paul, for talking about X's situation with us and telling us about what went on at HKIA um, with you and the network. It was really important to hear. No, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, we can have some more discussions and uh, hopefully there's a, a resolution for X and, and other people in the same situation. Yeah, and that's uh, for our listeners. We urge you to, uh, if you're moved by X's story, write to your congressional representatives and ask them to protect Afghans like X who served in the special forces and who, or anyone who worked alongside us. Um, they're now at high risk in Afghanistan and they deserve to be here like we promised. So please write if you feel moved to do so. Um, and then thank you all for sharing your time with us and supporting the people of Afghanistan. So Tasha Kaur, and we'll see you again soon.